0: Thank you for listening to the Hope Church podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. My is Josh. I'm the pastor here. Thank you, sir. At Hope Church, my wife and I welcome you. If y'all could give me a little more in this microphone... Is feeling a little bit weak. There we go. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, yes, yes. Amen. Happy Palm Sunday to you. Praise God. If we, uh, if you are with us for the first time today, we're so thankful to have you here. Welcome to Hope Church. So grateful to see you in this place this morning. There's, uh, there's so many other options that we have in our lives that when people come to church, I get excited. So it's so good to see you here, and uh, if we've not connected with you before, if this is your first time here, we'd love to connect with you. Would you take a hold of one of those green Connect cards and fill it out for us? We would love to connect with you and find out more about who you are and uh, get to know you and fellowship with you. If you need a church to call home, this is a good one. Amen? A couple of quick announcements for you today. Emily Neff's mom is having knee surgery this week, and where is Emily? I saw her just recently. Oh, there you are. Emily, what day is the surgery? Friday, okay. I know you told me that, and I already forgot, so thank you for reminding me. Uh, Her mom's having uh, knee surgery on Friday, and she's brought in some cards that are over under that mirror over there, and would love for you guys, we'd love for you guys to just go after the service and just... Just write down an encouraging thought, a word of encouragement. Uh, Let her know that you're praying for her. And Emily's going to bring her those cards this week. And we know that's going to be a huge blessing to her. How many of you have ever benefited from a word of encouragement in a time of need? Amen. Glory to God. Just a little bit more in this mic, if you don't mind, guys. Just a little bit more. I don't want to feel like I'm yelling too early. Amen. (laughs) I have um, one announcement. That I want to make this morning, in addition to that, one announcement that I'm actually very excited to make. It's an announcement that I've been sitting on for a couple of months. Um, And that is for, I'm getting texts. Okay, remind the youth they have motion devotion downstairs right after church. Youth, that's not my big announcement that I've been waiting two months to talk to you about. But it is important. So, young people, ages 10 to 15, motion devotion is right after church with Miss Vanessa downstairs. Uh, for, for the last several years, I've been employed with um, a fantastic, marvelous company called Destination by Design. And I've, been, I've worn a lot of hats over at that great place. And the, the owner and president of that business, uh, he and his wife, Erica, uh, how many of you know Eric Woolridge? Y'all know Eric in here? Great. Uh, he's out of town this week, but I told him I was going to do this anyway. Um, he, he and his wife, Erica, are just a blessing to our lives and to our church. And I've been employed in his company now for the last several years. And right about right about last, I don't know, August, September, Brianna and I started to, to have a conversation about my employment there and about the fact that we felt there was a change coming and so we started to talk about it pray about it and then during christmas break i made the decision we made the decision that i was going to that i was going to leave destination by design and no longer be employed by them and after vision sunday i had the chance to catch some lunch with eric during the week and we talked about it and and he was so he was so gracious and so pleased to which it sounds weird you know when somebody's leaving your company usually you're not happy unless they're terrible <laughs> but, but but i've had such a pleasure of helping that company to doing my part to help that company grow and 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 simultaneously to that our church has grown tremendously uh we need more chairs because we're running out of room in this room amen and so i said to eric i said bro I said, I can't do both, at least not very well. And so we had a discussion and we came to the conclusion that at the end of April, April 28th, I'm stepping full-time into pastoral ministry. And so, yes. Woo, woo, woo. I figured you'd, you'd respond that way. You know, I've never, I've never, since we started this church, I've never been able to not be bivocational. Uh, it takes a lot of effort and energy, and and stupidity, maybe sometimes, and craziness to start a church in a in a small town, in a town that's dominated by colleges by a college. And uh, but I'm here to tell you, it's been quite a ride. And uh, we are getting ready in October to celebrate ten years uh, as a ministry here. And I'm I'm going to tell you, we have grown more in the last. 16 months than we have in the previous nine years. And so we we said this the other day on the phone: year one is year ten, because this is gonna be year one of me pastoring full time and being able to pour my whole heart and soul and effort and energy and thought and 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 you know just all my attention into this ministry. So uh so buckle up, y'all, because we're getting ready to go somewhere to happen. Amen. And I'm just so excited to be able to to, to tell you that and make that announcement. I want to say two things. Thank you very much, even though they're not here uh, this morning. Thank you very much to Eric Woolridge and his wife, Erica, for giving me a home at their company. Uh, And thank you to you, Hope Church, for your faithfulness, for your continued uh, connection to our church, for your continued blessing into this house. It's making a difference, and, and year 10 is year one. We're getting ready to go somewhere, and I'm super-duper excited about it. Amen? That's just good stuff. Praise God. Amen. You can clap. Praise the Lord. Today is Palm Sunday, and I, you know, in all the years I've been doing this, I've always made a huge deal of Easter. Frankie's laughing because he knows what it is. So is my wife because they know what I'm about to say. Um... I've always made a huge deal of Easter as a pastor. I've never really made much of a big deal of Palm Sunday. And so about a month ago, we were sitting in one of our leadership meetings, and my wife was just like, I want you to preach a Palm Sunday message. And, and I was like, okay, well, you know, what does the rest of the table think? And it was resounding, yes, we need to preach about Palm Sunday. So, so here we are on Palm Sunday, and I'm going to share with you About Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, You know, I think I've I've over the years I've always placed so much emphasis on on Easter Sunday that I think Palm Sunday just kind of gets overshadowed in my mind. But but I want to do it justice this morning. So I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 12. Oh man. Yes, yes, yes. John chapter 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. And then we're going to make our confession that we make on Sundays together. And then we're going to pray and I'm going to try to preach this to you. John chapter 12, verse 12 says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things with them. I want us to make our confession of faith and then I'm going to pray and then I have some comments about the the verse that we just read. But let's make this confession out loud together today. Say, thank you, Father, that today the eyes of my heart see you. Perceive and understand your word and your will. Today I'm growing in the things of God. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning. That we have the opportunity to come to your word and grow in the things of God. that We have the opportunity to come and receive wisdom from, from your word that will forever change and transform our lives. God, this is not something that we take lightly, but rather something that we take with seriousness and with a sense of honor. What an honor it is to hear from you. What an honor it is to be your child. What an honor it is to learn of you this morning. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, teach us. Teach us as we as we dive deep into your word. And we pray that we would forever be changed as a result. In Jesus' name. And if you believe it, say amen. Amen. So the story is, of course, of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we now call Palm Sunday. It happens one week just just about one week prior to his crucifixion. It's, of course, one week prior to Easter. So I should say it happens one week prior to his resurrection and uh, and and four days prior to his crucifixion. But this was the, the timing. I want to give you a little bit of context this morning, and then I want to take a, a unique approach to this passage. But l- a little bit of context. This timing was a very significant and important time of of year for the Jews and for the Jewish people in Jerusalem. This was the week of Passover. This is the time when every household in the the land was preparing a sacrificial lamb. Uh, it's, It's no mystery why we went and read Exodus for communion, because I wanted to tie these two pieces together. Uh, this celebration, this feast, this festival of the Jews was happening right during this moment when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. You have to imagine that the Jews of that time, every every father, uh, every man of the house was out scouring to find his sacrificial lamb. Uh, and, and and a matter of fact, you, you might remember me, talking about uh, during Christmas time how Bethlehem was the city where all of the or most of the lambs were raised specifically for sacrifice. And so it's a very busy time in the nation of Israel, very busy time in Jerusalem. Some theologians that have supposed that on the day that Jesus actually entered into Jerusalem was the same day that households were selecting their individual lambs for slaughter. It's pretty amazing to think about that. Uh, and 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 a lot of theologians have have supposed that that was the reality. Um, it's also believed that on this same day that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, was arriving into Jerusalem. He actually lived in Caesarea, which was you know several days' journey away from Jerusalem at that time. And uh, you know we we take for granted that Pontius Pilate was in Jerusalem when we hear about. Uh, you know, the the crucifixion and the moments leading up to the crucifixion. But Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor over that entire region of the Roman Empire. It was his job to keep the Israelites in line with the Roman Empire. Okay? And so he was the governor over that region, and he lived in Caesarea, which was a seaside town. He didn't want to be in Jerusalem. He wanted to live in his nice Roman you know, seaside villa, and uh, who wouldn't, right? So, uh, so He knew, though, that at the time of Passover, it was a very important high traffic time in Israel. So he made it a point to go to Jerusalem. And uh, it's believed that this same day that Jesus is coming into the city from one gate, Pontius Pilate is coming into the city from another gate. and, uh, And he would have traveled in a typical warring, ruling Roman fashion, meaning he wouldn't come into the city quietly. He'd be riding on a white stallion. There'd be trumpeters going before him. There'd be people dancing. There would be soldiers marching. There'd be heralds and pronouncements and, you know, prepare the way. Hear ye, hear ye. Here comes Pontius Pilate, right? And so it's amazing to me the context and the juxtaposition of those two realities that on one side and one gate of the city is coming the ruler, the then ruler of the region, Pontius Pilate, the man who would ultimately hand Jesus back over to the Jews to be crucified. And here he comes through this gate in all of his splendor, riding a white horse. And then on the other side, we have Jesus riding a donkey. It's just amazing to me. What a contrast. Pilate riding on a war horse, Jesus riding on a donkey. So I want to ask this question today of what does Palm Sunday mean? And I want to ask it through the lens of each of the people that were present when Jesus rode in on that donkey. So what does Palm Sunday mean? And firstly, we'll ask, what did it mean to the Romans? There was a lot of groups that were present. What did this mean to those people that were there? Well, to the Romans, this would have been viewed as a threat. Jesus coming coming into Jerusalem, riding a donkey. And the Bible says a great multitude, most of the city, didn't come out to see Pilate. They came out to see Jesus. It says says right there in verse 12 that, that when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, the same massive multitude that followed him around during his ministry... When he would be teaching on the Mount of Olives, or when he would be by the Sea of Galilee, or when he was over here, over there, the, the same multitudes, the, the word in Greek for multitudes means a number uh, that is so high that they don't write it down. Right? It's just such a, it's such a great number that it doesn't have an actual number associated with it. It was just like there was a lot of people. Which I think is interesting because when Jesus feeds the 4,000 and when he feeds the 5,000, they counted that group. But they didn't bother to count the multitude, which tells me it must have been pretty big. So here's this massive population assembling around Jesus as he comes into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. To the Romans, I believe this would have been viewed as a threat. In fact, it's really interesting, and I never knew this, and this is why I need to preach Palm Sunday sermons, because I learned stuff that I didn't know. I never knew this, but at that time, the palm frond, y'all seen a palm frond? I grew up in Florida, so I know exactly what they look like. Praise God. Um, You you know what a palm frond looks like. That, That was a symbol at that time of the political party of the zealots, I don't know if you know anything about the Zealots, but they were a political party that was, was uh, creating a grassroots resistance towards the Roman Empire at that time. So if you were a Zealot, you were an enemy of the Romans. And it's, I find it interesting that the palm frond was a symbol of the Zealot Party, a political party in Rome, and it was used as a symbol of revolution. I, I found this out. I didn't know this. According to Roman law at that time, to wave a palm frond was a crucifiable offense. So when, when these people are seeing Jesus, whoever it was amongst the group that got a bunch of palm fronds and started waving them, we're trying to make a political statement and we're trying to incite a revolution. Now, this is very much in keeping with the, 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 the political narrative that the disciples and a lot of the people that followed Jesus actually had. Because people wanted Jesus to be their next king. In fact, even the disciples did. The disciples wanted, them to, wanted Jesus to be their next king because they wanted to be loosed from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. It's very interesting. Now, the reason Pontius Pilate was even in Jerusalem was for this show of political strength that I was talking about so, and to maintain order during the Passover. So to see a huge multitude of people weighing palm fronds around, it was a problem. And as a result, I believe the Romans were on high alert. What, what did it mean? What did Palm Sunday mean to God? God. We asked and answered the question, what did it mean to the Romans? What did it mean to God for his son to come triumphantly into Jerusalem? <clears throat> I believe that God, in this moment, was fulfilling his word to his people, a word of prophecy to his people. Let me read you a couple, a couple different words that are connected to that. Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11, these are the dying words of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Who's he talking about? Listen to what he says about Jesus. He says, He ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine, his robes and the blood of grapes. What does that symbolize? It symbolizes the death he was about to go through. The blood that we just got done talking about and singing about. These are the last words of Jacob. This is thousands plural of years before Jesus was even a thought in the minds of anyone. Daniel chapter 9, this is this is good. Uh, Bible prophecy language that I'm about to read you. This is, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 and 26 says, now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem. It just sounds very Bible prophecy, doesn't it? Seven sets of times of seven and 62, seven times seven, 70 times seven, seven. Just sounds very prophetic to me. Okay. 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses. That makes sense. There was a walled city. Jesus came through one of the gates in that walled city. Despite the perilous times, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise who, whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. That happened in, in the year 70 AD. The end will come with a flood and a war and its miseries are decreed from that time until the very end. Now, this is a very wordy passage. Go back. Uh, or Actually, you're, right, you're good right there. After the 62 weeks It it prophesies 62 sets of seven. What are those? Those are weeks. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, and a set of seven means seven years. 62 sevens is 434 years. How many years, can you guess, were between Nehemiah and Jesus? 434. Okay. Now, depending on when you... When, when you use Jesus' birth date versus the date that he was crucified, some people say 430 to 450, but it's pretty clear from this passage. It's 62 sets of seven years, which is 434 years. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, and 434 years later, Jesus walked through the gate into one of them, fulfilling this prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Amazing. You just can't make this stuff up. I'll have to get the actual figures for you because I'm probably going to mess them up if I try to do it now. But... Um, there was, a, there was a math professor in the 60s that was asked to determine the probability statistically of Jesus being the Messiah based on how many prophecies that were fulfilled. And there's, there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, very specific prophecies about the Messiah. And um, I'll have to get the actual numbers for you guys because I don't want to mess them up. But the number is so substantially large for the, the, the improbability of Jesus fulfilling all 300 of these prophecies, it's so beyond our ability to comprehend that, that the number is like to the power of 10, 50 times over, that he would fulfill just eight of the prophecies. It's just unbelievable. I'll have to get you the, the data because it's just really powerful. But, but, but here's three of those prophecies that Jesus fulfills just by walking through the gates, or just by riding through the gates on a donkey. So what does this mean to God? It means that he's fulfilling his promise that was made out of the mouth of Jacob, out of the mouth of Daniel, out of the mouth of Zechariah. What did it mean to the Pharisees? I think this was a threat to them also, right? Jesus has captured the attention of the people. And that's a problem for all the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, if you go down to verse 19, look what the Pharisees say. When they see all this commotion, look what they say, verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see, you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world is going after him. Isn't that crazy? It's it's amazing to me that the guys whose job it is to steer the nation spiritually are more preoccupied with trying to squish Jesus than they are trying to lead people during Passover week. Right? So this was a threat. It It also meant to the Pharisees judgment. If you were to go read Mark's version of this story, uh, it's in Mark chapter 11. We see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and pronouncing judgment over Jerusalem and over its religious system. It, It could have been called the weeping entry instead of the triumphal entry like it is in all of our Bibles. Why? Because... As triumphant as Jesus was when he rode through on that donkey, just a few verses later, you see him standing outside of the city, looking at the city and weeping and mourning for it because it was so dead and because it didn't recognize him. The saddest part about the about the Pharisees, about the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and the religious system of that time was that the one that they had spent all of their years and all of their time trying to learn about was standing in front of them, and they couldn't recognize him. It's amazing. I heard a person just say this recently. I thought it was really interesting. They, they, they. He's he's a pastor. He's a well-known pastor. He said, "I'm not a theologian." He says, "I, I, I." I, I don't think that God should just be studied. I said I think I think God's desire is that He be known yeah. rather than be studied. Because you can study about God and never know Him. The Pharisees are a perfect example of that. He th- this pastor went on to say, "I don't study my wife. I know her." I thought, well, that's pretty good. It's hard to argue with that. Now, of course, we want to know about God. I'm not trying to, not trying to suppose that theology's wrong. Of course it's not. Theology means the study of God, by the way. And, and, and I'm not trying to in any way suppose that that's wrong. I love theology. I love to study God. But I love to know him more. I love to know him so much more. It's really interesting to me that the Pharisees... The people that actually came under the judgment of God and, and the people to, who viewed Jesus as a threat were the people that never got to know him, yet they spent their lives studying about him. The, Bible, the, 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 the Hebrew tradition is actually very clear that if you wanted to even get into the school to become a rabbi, you had to learn the Torah backwards and forwards orally. You had to be able to quote the first five books of the Bible from memory just to get in. That was your entrance exam into Pharisee school. So, you want to talk about some learned people, some people that have absolutely burned the midnight oil to try to learn about God, yet when God is standing in front of them, they can't see Him. Yet, it's amazing to me that the thief who's hanging on his next to Jesus on the cross. Jesus turns to him and says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. It was the one who knew him that could go with him. But it was the people who knew a lot about him and all the, for all their knowledge, they were blind as a bat and couldn't see him. Jesus' actions here are a clear indication of who he is. He is publicly declaring himself to be the Messiah. And I believe this was both a threat And a judgment on the Pharisees. In fact, in Luke's version, Jesus, the Pharisees are getting on to Jesus because they're like, "You ought to tell all these people to quit waving these palm fronds." And this is my paraphrase, of course. You you ought to tell your people to shut up. And Jesus says something so profound. We use it as a praise and worship, uh, you know, saying a lot, but it's really meant to uh, about His Lordship as Messiah. He says, "If these don't cry out, the rocks will." It's amazing. In other words, I learned something new. Again, I keep learning all this kind of stuff because I'm preaching about Palm Sunday. It's believed that the road that Jesus walked into, the gate that he walked into, had tons of graves there. And people would come and take as a memorial and set stones, little pilings of stones, on top of each one of the graves. So that when Jesus says, if these don't worship me, the rocks will cry out. What he's meaning is, if these don't worship me, dead people are going to get up and start worshiping me. It's amazing so what did it mean to the Pharisees a threat and a judgment what did it mean to the people the people that were present I believe it meant hope right it's a great word around here I believe it meant hope the expectation of a future redemption even though it was misguided listen they wanted Jesus to be their king Like their political king, we want to have a new country and we want you to be the head of it. They were misguided in their zeal, but yet at the same time there was hope for something beyond where they were. They cried the word Hosanna, which means save me quickly. Save us. Save us. They wanted Jesus be their king. Think about this. Think about this. When the wise men, during Jesus's, during the Christmas season, before he was born, when the wise men came, they went and saw Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler. And they said to Herod, what did they say? They said, where is the king who is to be born or who was born? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. They recognize there's a king here. The crowd shouts, blessed is the king of Israel. Pilate, when he crucifies Jesus in just a few days, what does he write on the sign that goes above Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. There was all this king talk around Jesus. I mean, listen, Isaiah says it. In the the verse that we quote all the time for Christmas, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Brother, Prince of Peace. In the mind of the people, misguided as it was, they saw Jesus as their deliverer and their ruler, their king. So they wanted to crown a new king that day. Hence, they're shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord, save us, Lord, save us. Look, the palm fronds, we're going to start a revolution and you're here just in time. The people were looking for a king who would deal with the Romans. God gave them the king of all kings who would deal with death and hell and the grave. He didn't come to conquer Caesar. He came to conquer sin. Come on, y'all. He didn't co- Listen, how many, how many of us want Jesus to be something else instead of embracing who he actually is? <clears throat> I know that's, that, you know, listen. How, how many of us come to the table with preconceived notions about who we want Jesus to be in our life instead of embracing who he actually is? just a thought they wanted they wanted a king and God gave them a king but it was a different king than what they thought i'm here to tell you the government is on his shoulders and his name is called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace that prophetic word came true but he didn't do it by staging a revolution <clears throat> he didn't do it by creating a coup He didn't ride into the city on a white stallion and say, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm here to bust this place up. You know what I mean? (laughs) Ew. There you go. Yeah, hey, hey, how you doing? Pontius Pilate over here. Hey, can I call you Ponty? Ponty, let me tell you what I'm here to do. Put down your sword. No, he he didn't come in to bust the place up. He was looking way beyond that. He was looking at the sin and the depravity of humanity. He said, I'm going to win this by losing. I'm going to lead the army on a donkey. I'm going to win. Look at at what it says. I want to go back to to, uh, Daniel. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to this. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. To the outside world, Jesus seemed like a blip on the radar. Man, he did some amazing things during his earthly ministry. And thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people gathered to him. But when it was life was over, they all scattered. And it looked for a moment like nothing had been accomplished. Why do you think, why do you think that the, the 12 disciples are hiding out after his death? So much so that they miss the resurrection. Why are they hiding out in the upper room? Because they thought, man, we put our trust in somebody and he let us down. We put our trust in this guy who said he was the Messiah and now he's dead. What now? But Jesus' plan the whole time was to die. What did this mean for Jesus himself? He came to Jerusalem for a purpose. Scripture says, Jesus says, For the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and there be slain. He didn't come to be crowned king, but to be the selected sacrifice. I just think it's so interesting that potentially while all the other people in all the households in Jerusalem are selecting for themselves a lamb, just like Exodus said, Jesus is coming in announcing himself as the lamb. He's both the high priest and the lamb. He came in and he laid himself down as the lamb. And he doesn't ride in on a white horse. He rides in on a donkey. He knew what he had to do. He knew what he was going to Jerusalem to do. And I love that he rides in on a donkey in total humility. You know why? Because the real king never has anything to prove. The real king never has anything to prove. When you're Jesus, you don't have anything to prove. I'm here to do the will of him who sent me, he said, to seek and to save that which was lost. So my question for us today, we've asked and answered the question, what does this mean? What what does Palm Sunday mean? To the the Romans, it was an offense. It was was a threat. To God, it was a day of fulfillment when he was fulfilling his word that he'd made to his people. To the Pharisees, it was a threat. And it was a, a moment of judgment. To the people, it was hope. For a king, to Jesus, it was a moment of purpose. So my question for us today, what is: it to you? There's, a, there's another group of people involved here. It's us. What is it to us? What group are you standing with this morning? We're all here waving our palm fronds together. You hanging out with the Romans? You with the Pharisees? Is Jesus, are you with the Romans? Is, is Jesus a threat to your politics or to your kingdom that you're building for yourself? Are you with the Pharisees? Is Jesus a threat to your religious tradition? Or are you with the crowd proclaiming Jesus as king? Are you asking for a savior this morning? And a king, not a king in, not a king merely in man's natural terms, but but the king of kings and the lord of lords and the ruler of the universe, the, the creator of heaven and earth. I think it's a great question. To us, this day is a celebration of what Jesus was about to do that he was about to with with full control on his mind with total commitment absolute unwavering commitment that he's about to go to the cross to take all of our sin to take all of the junk and the filth of humanity how amazing how amazing that he loved us enough to ride in on a donkey And that he loved us enough to be misunderstood by the people that were there. (laughs) It's amazing. To get ready to, to go through all the turmoil that he was about to go through. I'm going to talk to you more about this next week. But Jesus was about to go through such tremendous agony that our... Our inclination and our minds have a hard time of really understanding the depth of the pain and the suffering and the trauma that he went through. I'll close with this, and we'll pick up here next week. I think of the scene at, in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus... Is praying, the Bible says, and he invites Peter and John to pray with him. And of course, you know the story, they fall asleep. And then he wakes them up and he says, Can't you pray with me for one hour? And and they say, Oh, sorry, Jesus, and they start praying, they fall asleep again. It's amazing to me that in the moment of Jesus' need, the people closest to him let him down. Yet in the moment of our need, he never lets us down. He's so faithful, (laughs) y'all. He's so faithful. So he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And and this is the moment. The Bible talks in in the book of Hebrews about him suffering obedience, even to die on a cross. And here he is in the garden with Peter and and John. And the Bible says he's off by himself crying out to God and he's saying, Lord, if there's any other way that we can do this, let's do it that way. If there's any, listen, if there's any other way for me to deal with the humanity's sins, if there's another out, God, if there's an off ramp, if there's something else, Lord, can you think of any other way that we can fix this problem? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know what's so significant about that moment? The Bible says he was was hemorrhaging and sweating blood. There was blood mixed into his sweat. That's the, um, the immensity of agony that he was under. I fully believe that in that moment, he was not agonizing over the cross, he was not agonizing over the beating, the crown of thorns, the nails. He knew what crucifixion looks like. He knew what awaited him. But the, you know what I think he was agonizing about? He was agonizing about separation from his father. He was agonizing about the moment when he would actually become sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it said that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us it's amazing that Jesus literally would become the thing that which God detested and that he would suffer a separation from his father this is the Jesus the the word who was made flesh the one who is one one of the three equal members of the trinity one who is part of the Godhead who lived in eternity with perfect communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They they had had been forever forever together. And now Jesus is about to go to the cross. And I don't think it's the cross that was agonizing to him. Of course, it was awful. And it was torture beyond what we can understand. But I think the thing that really caused him to sweat drops of blood, was the fact that he was going to bear all of the sin of all of humanity. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you've sinned and the weight of that sin weighs you down so substantially? The guilt, the pain, the frustration, the, oh, I can't believe I failed again. Oh, I can't believe I messed up again. Oh, I, can't. I did it again. I fell for the same thing. I fell back into the same sin. I did it again. Oh, I hurt another one. I caused another person grief. I did it again. I can't believe I failed again. And that was just one sin. We can't even imagine bearing the whole sin of all of humanity. Jesus agonized. But you know what's so beautiful? The Bible says that when he arose, he led captivity captive. The Bible says that when he, when he went into the grave, he triumphed over death and over hell and over the grave. Jesus We sang about it today. Jesus paid it all. All to him I freely owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. You see, the beauty of all that we're building towards in Easter next week, the beauty of this whole thing that starts way back in the Palm Fronds, that starts way back here at Palm Sunday, The beauty of it is that when Jesus died and rose again, not only did he deal with your sin and my sin and all of our sins and all the individual isolated events and moments in time called sin, not only did he deal with that, he he dealt sin such a final blow that not only can you live as though you've never sinned, You can live as though Adam never sinned. You can live as though sin never existed. Oh my God, I don't know if you just got what I just said. Not only, listen, it was such an agonizing moment. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to take all of humanity's sin with him. He's going to literally become the thing that God detests. And by doing so, he separated himself from the Father and he went into hell. He took our penalty for us. And now because he did that, not only can you live as though you've never sinned, you can live as though sin never existed. You can live as though Adam never transgressed. You and I can live in a place of absolute freedom where the past is totally gone, goner than gone, and the future has hope. Oh my God, we got a reason to celebrate we got a reason to rejoice. Death has been dealt its final blow. Sin has been annihilated. And now you and I have the chance to be free. Amen. Isn't that good? So which group are you in this morning? Which group are you? With your palm frond waving self? You a Pharisee? You with the Romans? You're on the side of the people that say, Lord, come save us. Come save us. I want you to be my king. But this time it's not misguided. I want you to be the king of my life, not the king of my country. I want you to be the king of my life. Amen. Would you stand up to your feet this morning? Not bad for Palm Sunday, (laughs) y'all. Oh, I'm telling you, it stirs me and it moves me emotionally to think about Easter. Next week, I'm gonna to talk to you about the pain that Jesus went through. I'm gonna to talk to you about the beating and the crucifixion and, the, and all of it. But the, but the reality is this. You can be transformed because of what Jesus did. That's what we're gonna talk about next week. We're gonna talk about you being transformed, going from darkness to darkness To light. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't want anybody looking around, and please don't move around. I want us to take a moment. And if you're in this place this morning and 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 you believe what I've said and, and, and maybe it's it's stirring your heart. If you came to church this morning and you're unsure. Whether or not you're saved, if you're unsure whether or not Jesus is your Lord. If you say, Yeah, Pastor Josh, I want to be, I wanna be like those people that, want, that wanted to crown Jesus as king, but I don't want to crown him king over our, our our government. I want to crown him king over my life. I want to submit my life to him this morning. If that's you, would you raise a hand so that I can see you? I see that hand. Would you raise a hand if you if you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. What a what what a day. Like Palm Sunday to do that. I give you just one more moment any other hands? Any other people? Amen. I want to pray a prayer over you and I want you to pray this with me. Let's declare Jesus lordship over our lives. Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life, know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com where Jesus loves you, we love you and your life counts.